barber? Did he draw the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the office football pool and he's already counting his losses? Sorry, when I was a kid, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were terrible. I don't actually follow sports as an adult, so I don't want to mislead anybody that I actually would know what I'm talking about there. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of us are uncomfortable with uncertainty. It's part of who we are, how we're wired, I think, as human beings. I don't understand why. But if you're like me, and you and I are like most people, and I think those are true statements, human beings are generally uncomfortable with uncertainty. Animals have to live with uncertainty all the time, this sense of hypervigilance and awareness. But as human beings capable of rational thought, we have an intellect. We certainly have faculties given to us by God that are unmatched anywhere else in creation. We're uncomfortable with uncertainty, particularly as it pertains to our own survival. Most people don't sit down with statistical charts and analyses and decide on the basis of evidence what specter of death or calamity should most fill them with dread. At our deepest levels, both as a society and as individuals, We choose from an endless menu of what to fret over and what to shrug off. And there's a lot of factors at play, the peculiarities of our culture, our particular personality, the the complex mix of who we are and the impulses that we're subjected to. We're all different in that way, but our anxiety is a particular thing that's related mostly to our knowledge about a situation, if we believe what we can study, what we understand about what's going on and the degree to which we believe we can control a situation. If if we made all of these risk decisions based on the science, then you and I would walk around at every moment today fearing some sort of cardiac event. We'd fear driving our car more than we would flying an airplane, being bitten by a dog, being struck by lightning, finding ourselves in an awkward social situation, the things that occupy the top ten list of what causes an anxiety. We, we tend to fear less what we believe we can control. One example from, I'll call it modern history, is smoking. When I grew up in my house, everybody in my house smoked. My parents, my brother, probably the dog, not me. My father had a number of health scares related to his smoking. I'm sorry. Um, I can remember as children... Well, not my brother. He'd already taken up smoking by this point. But we would plead with my dad to quit smoking. And he would say, you know, I just love it too much. I mean, it's an addiction, right? But what health officials discovered in America was that by putting warnings and educating the public about the dangers of smoking, that didn't reduce the amount of smoking because people felt that, hey, well, that was their own choice. They were in control of it. What, what actually reduced smoking in America was 
switching the tables on the campaign and telling people that it's not smoking that's going to kill you. It's the other person's smoking that's going to kill you. Secondhand smoke, that's what's going to give you cancer and kill you. And so as a result of that switch, if you will, smoking has become less commonplace. One way we deal with uncertainty and and buttress our perceptions of control over a situation is we make assumptions. It's And our attempt to maintain control can scale from minimizing something, it's not that big a deal, to making it to be the greatest threat to our personal existence. We're making assumptions to fill in gaps of information. Now, folk wisdom tells you never assume, because when you assume, it makes an out of you and me. I'll let the spellers in the room fill in the blanks. But this assertion itself, ironically, is is a fixed assumption. But let's talk for a moment about the nature and the use of assumptions. By definition, an assumption is a thing or an idea that we accept as true or certain, often without proof. But it's also something that we can use deliberately to fill in a gap in knowledge so as to enable us to function or to operate. In the military, when we're doing military planning, we make assumptions about the enemy. But through the course of planning and events, we're always working to validate those assumptions, to prove them true or untrue so as to help us continue to operate more effectively. We can make assumptions rather deliberately, but more often than not, we're operating on a set of assumptions about life, about others, about God, and ourselves, which we haven't challenged or validated. Because to leave gaps in understanding unfilled with these assumptions increases our anxiety. It increases our feeling that we're not in control. But yet when our assumptions are challenged, that can also create anxiety. Particularly when those challenges, or rather those assumptions that are being challenged, are about what we think we know about God. Well, the ability to make assumptions or good decisions and operate with wisdom is a critical aspect in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The scriptures are the wisdom of God that we have at our fingertips, and all scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ, and they're our most reliable guide to finding Jesus Christ. Well, the book of Job finds its place in the scriptures among the wisdom literature 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. And the story we find in this book that we're studying in this series is a story foremost about God and an invitation from God to trust in his wisdom. It's a unique book of the Bible. It's set in this land called Uz, a land far away from Israel of the Old Testament. The main characters are all non-Israelites. And there's no clear historical setting. Lots of conjecture about when it was written, who wrote it. And this is all intentional because the author wants us not to get caught up in all the historico-grammatical ways of interpreting the story. He wants us to focus on the questions that are being raised by Job's suffering. And through the story, we're being invited to challenge our assumptions about God in the same way that Job and his friends and their assumptions about God are being challenged by the situation that they face. His character, God's character, his nature, the principles upon which he rules the universe, and how does a good God explain human suffering? Well, spoiler alert, God doesn't give an answer. God doesn't give Job answers to all the questions that Job demands of God, but God does invite Job, and by extension you and I, to trust in his wisdom. And so the question we're looking at this morning is, how comfortable are you in your faith and in the mystery of God? God is both knowable and incomprehensible. How comfortable are you in the incomprehensible? We spend a lot of time focusing on the knowable about God. How comfortable are you in the divine mystery and the incomprehensibility of God, particularly when it challenges you in your life? How are we as modern-day disciples of Christ to deal with this mystery, his perceived silence or distance from us or others? His perceived inaction, his perceived injustice. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer for just a moment? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you, God, as the risen Christ. Give us eyes and ears this morning to perceive your wisdom for our lives and to receive transformed hearts that we may grow in our obedience to live into who you have created us to be. Amen. Well, we continue in our series in Job this morning, a series that we've titled The God We Need. And we're re-entering the story in a major portion of the book, which is an ongoing debate between Job and his friends. It's this dense Hebrew poetry that occupies about 34 chapters of the entire book of Job. And Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, they're engaged in this complex conversation about human suffering, about Job's suffering. They're asking questions or 
making assertions about whether our suffering is a punishment for our sins. Does God even know about our suffering? Does he care about it? Or worse, is he the one who inflicts it? It's a lengthy discussion, and it's orderly. And each of Job's friends show up, and after sitting for a time of silence, as we've already talked about in the story, now they're exploring a particular point of view, an opinion they have, and a, based on some assumptions they've made about God and Job and, and how God runs the universe. They give their point of view, and, and Job responds. What we need to take note of, however, is that all in the story are operating out of this overarching assumption about God and how he rules the world. Well, they assume that God rules the world. They're, they're comfortable in that knowledge. But they also believe that both success and reward and disaster and punishments come from the hand of God. And so God rules the world by blessing good behavior and punishing wickedness. It's a theme we see in the Old Testament. These friends of Job assume that Job is suffering because of his unrighteousness. That's the conclusion they've come to. And and as it pertains to Job, though, the story has already revealed to us in the first two chapters that Job is the exception to the rule at work in this assumption. He's a good person. I mean, there's no one good but God, but by human standards, he's a pretty good person. The book of Job never claims that Job is sinless. It simply says that he's done nothing to deserve the suffering that he's experiencing, and yet he's afflicted with every conceivable kind of pain. And his own suffering challenges his own assumptions about divine justice, and so he's left to wrestle with God about how God rules the world according to some principle of justice or to to simply conclude that God himself is not just. And so Job argues for his innocence. It's structured along the lines of a legal case that Job hopes to bring before God. And there's three cycles of this conversation in the story. And, and today we're looking at chapters 15 to 21, not in their entirety, but they represent the second cycle of this conversation, a conversation that's becoming increasingly hostile with every iteration. And Job is on this emotional pendulum He's swinging from confusion to bewilderment, anger to cynicism, despair to hopelessness. His experiences have him questioning everything he's assumed he knew about God. And Job, he doesn't want answers from his friends. He wants answers from God. Job... The man described by God himself as blameless and righteous. Job, in his suffering, is is tempted to believe the same lies that you and I are tempted to believe as we experience the trials of life. And what are some of those lies that Job is being tempted to believe? Well, turning to the, the scriptures in 
chapter 16, verses 11 to 14. This is Job speaking. He says, God has handed me over to sinners. He's tossed me into the hands of the wicked. I was living quietly until he shattered me. He took me by the neck and broke me in pieces. Then he set me up as his target, and now his archers surround me. His arrows purse me, purse, pierce me without mercy. The ground is wet with my blood. Again and again, he smashes against me, charging at me like a warrior. And then in chapter 19, beginning at verse 7, he says, I cry out, help! But no one answers me. I protest But there is no justice. God has blocked my way so I cannot move. He's plunged my path into darkness. He stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. Job, friends, is concluding that because of what he is experiencing, that there is no justice. God can't be trusted. At least he's, from time to time, pondering or camping on that conclusion. Because Job is is swinging again. He's riding this emotional roller coaster. He wants a hearing to seek justice from God. And his God is seemingly absent and silent. Yet the problem, friends, isn't that God is not present and unknowable. God is as present and knowable for Job however many thousands of years ago as he is for you and I in this moment. The problem is that Job's perception and his understanding of God are are obfuscated by the assumptions he's made about God, the certainty that he's placed in what he thinks he knows about God, and certainly about what he's experiencing. A second lie seems also to hold sway with Job. Again, reading from chapter 17, starting in verse 1. My spirit is crushed. My life is nearly snuffed out. The grave is ready to receive me. Verse 6. God has made a mockery of me among the people. They spit in my face. Picking up at verse 11. My days are over. My hopes have disappeared. My heart's desires are broken. These men say that night is day. They claim that the darkness is light. What if I go to the grave and make my bed in darkness? What if I call the grave my father and the maggot my mother or my sister? Where then is my hope? Can anyone find it? No, my hope will go down with me to the grave. We will rest together in the dust. And as we heard this morning in our scripture reading in chapter 19, verse 10, he has demolished me on every side and I am finished. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. You see, friends, We might be tempted to believe that God can't be trusted, that God is unjust. 
But we may also be tempted to believe because of our experiences that there's no hope in the goodness of God. After all, how can a good God allow people to suffer? Christian apologists say that this is the question that keeps most people from placing their trust in God. You see, Job is being tortured by the same adversary, the same accuser, the same forces and will at work in the world that have been opposed to the will of God and all of humankind for all of human history. It's as if What Job is experiencing is communicating to him both consciously through his friends and subconsciously through all the calamities that have befallen him. The same thing that the serpent said to Eve in the garden as we read in the third chapter of Genesis. Did God actually say, can you trust what God has told you is what the enemy is saying. Can you trust what God has given you is good, is enough? Can you trust who it is that God has already revealed himself to be? Can you trust who it is that God has already revealed himself to be? Where do these lies attempt to hold sway in your own life? Where do they enter into your thinking? Well, a third lie we see at work is in Job's friends, and it's this lie that we get what we deserve, or you get what you deserve, or they got what they deserve. In chapter 18, Bildad the Shuhite is lecturing Job. Picking up at verse 5, he says, Surely the light of the wicked will be snuffed out. The sparks of their fire will not glow. The light in their tent will grow dark. The lamp hanging above them will be quenched. The confident stride of the wicked will be shortened. Their own schemes will be their downfall. The wicked walk into a net. They fall into a pit. A trap grabs them by the heel. A snare holds them tight. And moving on to 17, all memory of their existence will fade from the earth. No one will remember their names. They will be thrust from light into darkness and driven from the world. Well, this may be more of a prevalent problem in the human heart than we care to admit, even among those who are saved by grace. As I've gone through trials in my own life from time to time at various states of my Christian walk, there's always been somebody who says, why do you think God's doing this to you? And I don't think they mean it in the sense of, you know, gee, what's the cosmic good plan that God has for your life right now? I think what they mean is, is, The same thing that Pilate said to Jesus. What have you done? We're told in John's gospel that after Jesus passed by a man blind from birth, the disciples who were with him asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
Jesus gives them an answer. He says, neither. He says, this man was born this way to glorify God, so that God would be glorified. We're also told later in the same part of the story that the Pharisees, when confronted with this miracle, they become indignant. They're indignant that Jesus violated their own assumptions about how a righteous person should behave on the Sabbath. And what do they do? They castigate the man that Jesus healed by saying to him, you were born in utter sin. And then the scripture tells us they they cast him out. They throw him out. Imagine a people so entrenched in their assumptions about God that they could be upset about a miracle that God has worked in his power. And they take out their own disappointment on the one whom God chose to bless. It's it's astonishing the lengths that we will go to when our own operating assumptions are challenged. But what is what is challenging us? In our particular walk, where do we need to examine our own assumptions about God? And what about the the lie that we're tempted to believe that we can become experts about God? I'm a master of theology. I haven't mastered anything, to be honest, except being an idiot, but... Or that the goal of our growth as disciples is to become experts about God and the scriptures and the rules. Isn't that part of the danger as to how assumptions can function in our lives? That that we can come to believe that in order to operate comfortably in our faith, we have to have it all figured out. Or worse, we can believe that we already have. And so we feel threatened by any invitation to examine what we assume we know about the scriptures, about God, how it is we're called to be disciples, how it is we're to worship. Job's friends in this story represent the best in ancient Near Eastern thought. Of his time. They're, they're educated men. They're, we could say they're religious scholars. And they're certainly right about one thing. God is just. But they're wrong in their assumption as to how God works out his justice in this world. They assume they have it all figured out because that's what we're compelled to do as humans. We fill in gaps in our knowledge. Lots of contemporary examples today, friends. Walter Brueggemann, considered to be one of the most influential Old Testament scholars and Protestant theologians of the last few decades, has this to say about our uncomfortableness with uncertainty. He says, we all have a hunger for certitude. Yet the problem is that the gospel is not about certitude. It's about fidelity. It's about faithfulness. So what our flesh wants to do, if we can, is immediately transpose fidelity into certitude. Because fidelity is a relational category and certitude is is flat. It's mechanical. 
It's measurable. It's seemingly more objective. He says, so we have to acknowledge our thirst for certitude and then recognize that if you had all the certitude in the world, it would not make the quality of your life any better because what we must have is fidelity. I'll say that again. We have to acknowledge our thirst for certitude and then recognize that if we had all the certitudes in the world, it would not make the quality of our lives any better because what we must have is faith. A certain trust. You see, if in our discomfort with the mystery of God, those those parts of God that he hasn't revealed about himself, the things about God we can't figure out, where the assumptions we've made about God that are being challenged by the reality of our circumstances, if in our discomfort with the mystery of God we can be so easily tempted to doubt the justice of God, well, where where then can we find the good news? Well, the good news for you and I, friends, is that God himself is not unacquainted with suffering. There is no suffering that you and I can experience in this life that we can even conceive of that comes close to what God himself has already endured on our behalf. He has suffered in ways that you and I will never suffer. God's promise to you and I, friends, is that I will never leave you or forsake you. But there was a time in Christ's suffering on the cross where he was separated from the Father. An unimaginable pain and loneliness feeling of abandonment, estrangement, you and I could never conceive of. And God is involved in our human suffering. He's always present and at work. He's everywhere. He's in every molecule of this universe that we live in. He's involved in our suffering. He sees us in our suffering. He's present with us in our suffering. His promise is that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he has not, and he will not. In his presence, God doesn't come like Job's friends with smooth excuses and brisk retorts. He he comes in the shape of this dreadfully rejected and brutally murdered son. And as we see at the end of the story, all of Job's indignant Questions and challenges to God fell silent when God finally shows up in the whirlwind and begins to give Job a lesson in humility by taking him on a virtual tour of the universe. And all our own questions and challenges fall silent in the presence of Christ and before a crucified God. And so a question that's crucial for our own growth as disciples is, can we become comfortable enough in the uncertainty? Can we, will we let God be God where he has chosen to keep something hidden from us or something less clearly defined for us?
So then how then are we to respond when we're confronted, when we're challenged by this mystery of God, this divine incomprehensibility? Well, one is we have to process our our issues and our questions, our feelings and our complaints through the struggle of prayer. As we see in this book, God is big enough to handle our questions, our doubts, our laments. We saw this in the Psalms this morning as we heard in our call to worship in Psalm 17. We see it in Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see it in what Jesus cries out from the cross. And we see in this book of Job that God is big enough and faithful enough to handle our challenges and our indignation. Job is raging at God. Job's rage is making those around him uncomfortable. It would make you and I uncomfortable. We'd be like, dude... Chill out. I know it hurts, but don't say that. And what does God do? He doesn't stay away. He shows up. And he gives Job just enough information to make Job realize who God is. And that's good enough for Job. So we need to process our issues and questions and our feelings and our complaints through the struggle of prayer. And we need to trust in God's wisdom and character as it's already been revealed to us in creation and history and in Christ. Again, from our scripture reading this morning in chapter 19, we we see Job coming back to this place As he swings on this pendulum, he consistently comes back to reaffirming what he knows to be true about God. Says in verse 23, oh, that my words could be recorded. Oh, that they could be inscribed on a monument, carved with an iron chisel and filled with lead, engraved forever on the rock. He's saying that the things that he's testifying about himself... The defense that he's making for himself, his own righteousness is his defense. Says, I wish that this could be recorded, that they'd be inscribed on a monument for all to see long after I am gone. But then he says, but as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and he will stand on the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, Yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. And then he says, I'm I'm overwhelmed at the thought. It's a marvelous passage of scripture and scholars argue as to whether this redeemer that Job speaks of should be interpreted Christologically. I'm not going to go through those arguments, but but what we can all agree on here is that Job is expressing a faith-filled hope. His faith-filled hope is certain trust in who God is. 
and who God has revealed himself to be. God hasn't answered all of Job's questions. God hasn't given Job a detailed explanation for everything that's happened to him. And God shows up at the end of the story and doesn't give him that explanation. But God has certainly given Job enough. He's given you and I enough. That rather than certitudes, we can have fidelity in who God is. This certain trust that the God who sees human hearts knows the truth about Job and that Job will be redeemed and that Job will see God. That that God sees your heart and my heart. He knows the truth about you and me, good, bad, and indifferent. And that if we've put our faith in Christ, we will see God and we will be with him in eternity. And what's, what's God's explanation to Job? He, he, he takes him on a tour of the wonders of creation and that we live in a world that in its present state is not designed to prevent suffering. But we don't have an answer as to why, but that's just, God says that's just the way it is. My ways are, are not your ways. And then throughout the old, Testament scriptures, the historical writings, we see God reminding Israel of what he's done in history, how he's made promises, kept promises, how he's delivered them. And while God has no more revealed I with perfect clarity as to how he runs the world, dispenses justice, or why he allows suffering, he invites us in the same way he invited Job to trust in his wisdom. Because God can never be fully known. We who seek to know God should be deeply humbled in the process, realizing that we'll always have more to learn. The appropriate response to God is a, is a heart of wonder and awe in light of his incomprehensible greatness. But God's incomprehensibility also means that our beliefs can be held with firm conviction even though they're filled with inexplicable mystery. The Trinity is one. The divine and human natures of Christ, another. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Many of the core teachings of the Christian faith are profoundly mysterious. And believing them requires a a robust affirmation of the incomprehensibility of God and a growing comfort that where the scriptures are silent or where they speak less clearly or consistently, we can be comfortable, we can be confident because God has revealed enough about himself to make faith in him a reasonable thing. But he's also left enough out that we can't live by reason alone. We, we can't insist on figuring it all out. The good news for you and I, brothers and sisters, is that we who live in this age of human history, we can have this reasonable faith that we can be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That our Redeemer lives in the person, the words, and the works of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?
your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We hold up all our weakness to your strength, our failure to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection, our loneliness to your compassion, our little pains to your great agony on the cross. We pray that you will cleanse us, strengthen us, guide us, so that in all ways our lives may be lived as you would have them lived, without cowardice, without presumption, and for you alone. Show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, and true love, in the certain hope that our Redeemer lives, and with the knowledge that one day we'll see far more than the outskirts of your ways, we'll hear far more than your small whisper, and we will fully comprehend your power and your majesty. And we pray all these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen.